0: Okay, today we are, uh, I almost made the mistake of saying we're closing out chapter 2, but actually Kevin's going to do that for us next week. Uh, But today we're closing out the first evangelistic speech of Peter in Acts chapter 2. It's the first speech uh, that's given uh, after the events of Pentecost in the book of Acts, so it carries a lot of weight. And uh, just to kind of uh, give you a little bit of framework here, last week we looked at the events of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes out, when God pours out the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and then we looked at how Peter used that those events and explained them using a prophecy, hundreds and hundreds of years old from the prophet Joel, uh, and and he explained what was happening through Joel chapter two, and he brings up the inevitability of judgment. That was one of the things he leads off with uh, from Joel's prophecy: is that that judgment is coming, that future judgment is inevitable. We will stand before our Creator. Uh, and then he kind of sets up the rest of his speech, that so we're going to look at today with that. Um, but he doesn't end, we, we, uh, in fact, we didn't end last week with judgment. Well, how do we end last week in verse 21? It was a call to salvation. It was a call to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Uh, and, and we're going to see today that that is Jesus Christ. And so what Peter's going to do today in the rest of his speech is he's going to elaborate on this message of salvation, and he's going to introduce us to the Lord of our salvation, the name of the Lord upon which we will call for salvation, and he's going to help us better understand how to be saved. Uh, And so really, today's passage is all about the importance of what I'm going to call gospel clarity. Gospel clarity, being clear on the gospel. And as I was thinking about a way to kind of introduce this concept, this, this idea of gospel clarity, uh, I, I, in March, actually, I will celebrate my 10-year anniversary of being ordained to pastoral ministry by my old church in Fort Worth that I was at when I came to Faith in Christ and went to seminary. And they ordained me 10 years ago this coming March. And it was basically uh, a stamp of approval. Yeah, there it is. That's, that's hanging on my wall. Look at that. Uh, And and as you can read, I was ordained to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I felt the weight of that when I was ordained, but it's basically a stamp of approval that my church gave to to those who would become pastors. And I was really uh, blessed by that. Um, Before I was ordained, however, they have this whole process of, it's called ordination examination, right? Uh, It sounds like you have to go to the doctor for that or something, but Ordination examination is this process of making sure the people that they ordained to this, this pastoral ministry uh, knew what in the world they were doing. Uh, that I knew what in the world I was doing, and so they examined me. And it was I was in an examination by the the our board of elders as well as all our senior pastoral staff at the church. And so uh, during that ordination exam, uh, I had gotten a sheet with like nineteen questions to like kind of study. And I made like 10 pages of notes, and I was like, I was ready. And then one of the elders asks me this question that wasn't on the review sheet, right? He says, uh, so how, how would you explain the gospel to somebody who's not a Christian? And I was like, I can talk to you about... God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how that works you know like can I get like an easier question you'd think that would be like the easiest question in the world but I just launched into it you know wanted to look confident I was pretty young at the time and uh and so my explanation was basically a theological treatise on why Jesus had to die for us on the cross I used lots of fancy terms that I'd learned in seminary and I'm sure it was very impressive uh right maybe not at all um but all that to say nobody batted an eye I, I gave my explanation of why Christ had to die, why he had to be crucified, and then we moved on to the next question. And so it was after that examination that I realized that I had completely forgotten to say anything about the glorious resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. I had left him in the grave at the end of my ordination exam, you know. And and I kind of it was like one of those oh, I can't believe I did that, and I can't believe nobody caught me for doing that um, and called me out. But but nobody raised an eyebrow, and I was eventually approved, and I received that fancy certificate you see back there. Um, so I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is, did I adequately explain the gospel? No, no, I did not adequately explain the gospel. I mean, looking back, I realized that I only explained a part, a, a component, an aspect of the gospel, one facet of the fullness of the, the good news of Jesus Christ, but I did not adequately explain the gospel. And it's not that I wasn't a Christian. I had come to faith in Christ at 23 uh, and, 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 and grown like a weed, you know, and um, I had gone to seminary. I, I understood these kinds. I believed in the resurrection and the ascension and the return of Jesus Christ. It's not that I wasn't a Christian. Uh, it's, it's that I lacked the ability to clearly communicate this good news. So can you be a Christian and not be very good at or or lack uh, clarity in your gospel presentation? Yes, the answer is yes, and that was totally me for a long time, honestly. Um, But here's here's the deal that we wrestle with. If we lack gospel clarity, then we won't be effective in gospel ministry. That certificate that was up there won't be worth the paper it's printed on in terms of my effectiveness in gospel ministry if I lack gospel clarity. That's not to say that it's not ultimately the power of God, ultimately God in his uh, sovereign ability, leading people, bringing people to Christ, but he uses us as vessels, as vehicles to bring that good news to people. And so if we lack that clarity, then we won't be effective in gospel ministry. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have a part to play in the Great Commission. I don't care if you have an, an Ordination certificate hanging on your wall, you have a part to play if you've said yes to Jesus, if you've trusted in Him. And therefore, we all need to be equipped to share our faith. You know, when we talk about this uh, spiritual growth survey we're sending out, I love the honesty that some people have. They're like, I don't know how to pray, I don't feel like I'm good at it, I don't know how to share my faith. I don't know what to say. I couldn't. I don't know how to lead someone to Christ. <laughs> I love that honesty because that's where we as a church need to dig in and not just think of that as the ABCs of being a Christian, but really think of that as kind of the A to Z, as many people have pointed out before me, that this is, this is something we all need to know and it's something we need to hang on to and, and remind ourselves of and one another of constantly this gospel clarity. So the big idea today is that salvation comes through hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's be clear about it. In today's passage, Peter's spirit-inspired speech is a wonderful example of gospel clarity, one of the best examples of gospel clarity in the New Testament. And he clarifies both the message of salvation as well as the means of, of how to be saved. So like Peter, we must be clear about the message of salvation. What is this good news? In Acts chapter 2, we see how gospel clarity depends on on really two things. Content, what you actually say, and then context, who you're talking to and how you're talking about what you say. So we're going to look at content and context in terms of this clarity of message. So the content of the gospel, folks, it never changes we still preach the same gospel that Peter was preaching almost 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. The gospel, the content of it never changes. It's always going to be about the person and work of Jesus Christ in His first and second coming. That's always going to be the the content of the gospel, the person and work of Christ in His first and second coming. And I want to reread some of Acts 2 where Peter actually shares the gospel. And I just want you to listen to how he walks through this content of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. So, so just perk up your ears and listen how he talks about the person and work of Christ in his first and second coming. And actually, I'm going to go back to something we covered last week, because he starts off with that Joel prophecy, and we're going to talk about why he does that in a little bit, but he talks about this Joel prophecy in which Jesus is returning to the earth as judge and king. And that's what he leads off with. So I want to start in, uh, in, in 19 and 20. He's quoting Joel chapter 2. And Peter says, and he's, this is God speaking, but Peter uh, rehearsing that quotation. He says, and I will display wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great, those are all Old Testament um, uh, uh, symbols and, and, and um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Old Testament kind of pictures of judgment, okay? He says, uh, before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. That is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. And then he, in uh, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, the life of Christ. That includes, uh, because Jesus the Nazarene, he's born in Nazareth, that includes the, the incarnation, but he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that. But here we have the life of Christ, empowered by God, with all these miraculous signs and wonders. And then in verse 23, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan, and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, probably talking about the Romans, uh, but he's talking to the the Jewish audience, particularly the the leadership, the religious leaders. And he said, uh, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And by the way, that's where I would have gone if they asked me, could you help me understand God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, or culpability, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, that's, that's the passage I had ready to go when they hit me with the what is the gospel question. But this, this is actually where I stopped in my presentation of the gospel, right? Uh, you na- that he was nailed to the cross. He was put to death. It was according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. All right, next question, right? So I stopped there. So Peter actually goes on, and he recounts the resurrection beginning in verse 24. He says, "But." That's the, one of the greatest words in all of Scripture. But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 32, It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. He's talking about these first Christians, the apostles. Verse 33, Therefore, since he has been exalted, To the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, his work was accepted by the Father and he received the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. So, since Peter has already explained earlier with the Joel quote, he's already explained that Jesus will return as the Lord of judgment and salvation. And the Jewish audience he's speaking to, they believe that. They were steeped in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, and they believed that. And so he had already explained that. And so then he circles back around at the end of this gospel presentation uh, to the implications of crucifying the Lord of judgment and salvation, the Lord, the Christ, Jesus. So he circles back and he, he looks at the implications in light of the proven identity of who Jesus proved to be, finally. Finally. And then verse 36: Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So, according to Peter, the content of the gospel is the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ for our salvation. That's the gospel message, that's the content. And this work of salvation, if you notice from the context, and you see this in other gospel presentations in Scripture, uh, all three members of the Trinity are involved in this work of salvation. You see the Father, you see the Son, you see the Holy Spirit. They're all uh, uh, playing different roles in bringing us to salvation and in accomplishing the salvific work. And then these unchanging truths of the gospel, stand. this is why we talk about the, the Bible as centered on Christ, we have a Christ-centric approach to reading the Bible. It's because the Old Testament sets up creation and fall in the very first three chapters. We get God created, it was good, God, our holy, powerful creator, creates us for relationship. We say, no thank you, we rebel, there's the fall, there's all the fallout from the fall. And that brings us to, how is God going to fix this? And there's... there's uh, little Easter eggs sort of all throughout the Old Testament about what God is going to do to accomplish redemption, to redeem a people for himself despite our sin. And so the Old Testament is looking forward to the redemption that Jesus Christ is going to ultimately provide. And, and looking back now, it's easier to see that than it was for them looking forward with their Hebrew scriptures. But now we can clearly see how this was ultimately God's plan, is I'm going to redeem people unto myself through, the, through sending my one and only son to die on a cross and rise from the dead and, and be our great high priest and to be our king and to establish his kingdom. Uh, so, so these unchanging truths of the gospel that we just articulated, they stand at the very center of the story of the Bible. They're the culmination of God's plan to redeem humanity in the wake of creation and fall. And then they also uh, provide the basis for the New Testament hope of restoration, The New Testament is looking back at the cross, is looking back at the empty tomb, is looking back at what they know about who Jesus is and what he's doing right now at the right hand of God the Father. And that is the basis of hope for them to look to the future and know that God is restoring all things, that we will too be resurrected, that we now have new life in Christ. We've been given a new nature in Christ, and as Paul works out in Romans 8, that he's actually not just restoring us, he's restoring creation. There's going to be a recreation, a restoration of all things. And this great biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, recreation, or restoration, right smack in the center of it is this work of redemption that is the person, and work of Jesus Christ in his first and second coming. And so that's what we see in this gospel presentation and in others throughout Scripture. If we're going to be clear about the message of salvation, then we have to be clear about the unchanging truths of the gospel. But content isn't the only thing we have to pay attention to. It's not like, you know, I I can just give you like a little, uh, I guess I could, I could give you like a little note, you know, that has like, you know, uh, Jesus came to the earth and and died for your sins and rose again and ascended into heaven. And you could just kind of like walk up to somebody, Mr. Marshall, and go, hey, uh, I want to read something to you. you know, this is the, that's what gospel tracts do sometimes, the really simple ones, and that's okay. Can God lead someone to faith in Christ through that? Absolutely he can. But what you'll notice is if you've seen a lot of different types of gospel tracts, they, they don't look the exact same. They, they contextualize the message of the gospel in different ways for different audiences, okay? So there's, the, there's this context of the gospel that we have to pay attention to, and we can think about the context of the gospel in two different ways. First of all, there's the biblical context, which allows us to present the content of the gospel in different ways. That's kind of that story I just talked to you about. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's, that's the, the big story of the Bible, right? So we can couch the gospel in that. But there's also like tons, dozens and dozens of themes in scripture that you can grab and pull into a gospel presentation based on your audience. There's, there's themes of kingdom, there's themes of, of forgiveness, restoration, new life, um, there's themes of rest, uh, you know, finding our resting place, our home, we're sojourners. I mean, there's all, and they run from the Garden of Eden all the way through the book of Revelation. And so there's this great biblical context that we can contextualize the gospel with. The second thing that we can look for is the situational context. Guys, no, no, no two people in this room are exactly alike, much less out there in the wide world, right? So we need to understand what's the situational context that we're sharing the gospel in. And that's the who, the when, the where that will necessarily affect how we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? And I really like, I'm a big fan of, of Tim Keller. A lot of y'all have heard of him. He's a pastor, church planner up in Manhattan and I really like how he explains this in his book, Center Church. He says one of the reasons that the gospel is never given in exactly the same form. He's talking about in the Bible. You don't see this like cut and paste gospel presentation in the Bible. We'll see that next. But he says one of the reasons the gospel is never given in exactly the same form is not only the diverse richness of the biblical material itself with all of its intercanonical themes. That means themes that run through the Old and New Testament but also the diverse richness of humanity. Paul himself presented the gospel content in different ways, using different orders. Uh, Just think about how Peter put judgment and the return of Christ on the front end of his gospel presentation, right? So Paul uh, used different orders, arguments, levels of emphasis, and so on to different cultures. And we should too, Keller writes. And he, he, he says this, The gospel is so rich... That it can be communicated in a form that fits every situation. And then he says this, it is a singular message, but it is not a simple message. Do you understand what he's saying there? That there is unchanging content, but it's so rich in terms of its contextualization. And I want to read uh, verses 25 through 35 from our passage. And I want you to, this is like an exercise we're all going to do together. I want you to listen for how Peter contextualizes the gospel for his audience. I want you to listen to how he takes this first century Jewish audience, mostly uh, Jews by ethnicity and, and, and race, but also proselytes, people that have joined the, the Jewish faith who, who, weren't, uh, who were Gentiles ethnically, so, but mostly his audience is, is, is Jewish folks there for Pentecost in Jerusalem in the first century. And many of these folks actually witnessed and some of, of them actually participated in the crowds at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Guys, that's a very unique audience that Peter's speaking to. So listen to how he contextualizes this based on his audience. Starting in verse 25, it says, For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue was overjoyed. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. That's the place of the dead. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes the Psalm of David. And then verse 29, brothers. And he goes from men of Israel to brothers. There's There's this relational proximity that he's moving in closer. Men of Israel, brothers. And this could also include the women in the crowd. He says, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. The Christ is the Messiah, the Anointed One. That, he, that, this, that the Christ was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay, It is this Jesus whom God raised up, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, since he has been exalted at the right hand of God and has received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, folks, we're not going to unpack all that today. I know that's a lot of Scripture, but just listen to what he's doing, okay? Listen to how he's contextualizing. Peter is using Old Testament themes from the Hebrew Scriptures, like the kingdom, like God's covenant with David in the books of Samuel. They get reflected in the Psalms of David. Uh, And he's taking these themes and these quotations from three different Psalms, which many of the Jewish people in his own audience understood to be ultimately pointing to the Messiah, to the Christ, to the greater son of David, who would be king forever and ever, seated on David's throne. And Peter contextualizes the, the presentation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, for this particular Jewish audience. They, they knew the Hebrew scriptures back and forth. Like Whoever knows the scriptures best in this room, the Old Testament scriptures, You didn't know it as well as a kid did back in the first century in Jerusalem, okay? They knew it backwards and forwards, and he knew that they knew it. And they were waiting for the Messiah and the restoration of Israel. A lot of people you talk to today that are steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, they're not waiting for a Messiah anymore. They've come up with a a different way of interpreting that, those, those Hebrew Scriptures, those promises of God. But back then, they were waiting on the Messiah. They were looking at the Old Testament Scriptures going, God's going to send his Messiah, this greater son of David. And they're anticipating that. And then uh, he was going to restore Israel. And so this was a really effective way to contextualize these unchanging truths of the gospel. So to summarize this, gospel clarity means being clear about the message of salvation. And that requires communicating the same unchanging content, but contextualizing those truths using different biblical themes for different audiences. That's a fancy way of just saying, we've got to preach the gospel with clarity, knowing what the content of the gospel is, but also being able to adapt it to who we're talking to using biblical concepts. Uh, The gospel, and this is my illustration for you, so if you don't hang on to any of that stuff I just said, I want you to hang on to this. Kids, I want you to hang on to this. The gospel is like Neapolitan ice cream. Are you ready for this? Kids, do you know what Neapolitan ice cream is? It's losing favor among the young people today. I'm, I'm saddened by that. But the ne- Neapolitan ice cream consists of three flavors. Who knows them? Vanilla, chocolate. chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. Very good. You guys are on it today. Uh, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, if, if you're missing one or two of those flavors, do you have Neapolitan ice cream? You do not. You have Bluebell's Great Divide or something like this, but you do not... You do not have Neapolitan if you you lose one or two of those flavors, okay? So the the great divide, which has vanilla and chocolate, that's not Neapolitan ice cream unless what? Unless you add in strawberry. Now you've got Neapolitan ice cream. And and it would also be unwise, so you can't take away from Neapolitan ice cream. You can't remove a flavor, but it's also unwise to add flavors to your mix, right? Right? Can you imagine what would happen if you added mint chocolate chip to the original flavors of your Neapolitan ice cream? Now, my contention would be that rather than improving upon Neapolitan ice cream, you'd actually be creating a brand new flavor and not a good one. And it would actually diminish the flavors of the Neapolitan ice cream that are so perfectly matched and held together in that flavor. So you can't have less than the original three flavors, and you shouldn't add more to the mix, but that leaves a whole lot of latitude to experience Neapolitan ice cream in a lot of different ways. So for instance, you've seen the cartons, you've opened them up, you see the stripes or bands, whatever they're called, right? So usually you see chocolate and strawberry flanking vanilla. Vanilla's in the middle, right, in most cartons. But I've seen cartons where chocolate or even strawberry is in the middle. Um, I know. I I get this look of just being like aghast. Like, I can't believe it. Is that heresy? I don't know. Uh, You could use milk chocolate for the chocolate. Or you could choose to use Dutch chocolate or dark chocolate. You could use homemade vanilla or French vanilla or even vanilla bean. Right? Now, kids really don't like that one. You could scoop out a solid, single-flavor scoop. Like, I'm going to get a scoop of strawberry. I'm going to get a scoop of vanilla. I'm going to get a scoop of chocolate and put all three scoops in my bowl. Or you could do, if you're crazy, you want to get a little crazy, you do, you do, like, across the grain, and you get, like, the, the three-color scoops and, and just have all the flavors in each scoop. You know, that's great. Uh, you could put it in a big bowl. You could put it in a little plastic cup. You could use a sugar cone. You could use a waffle cone. Folks, you could even freeze it did you already show that you could even freeze it and send it along on a mission to the moon with the astronauts did anybody go to the museums in the 80s and get the freeze dried neapolitan i don't know if it's wise but man if you're going to the moon you got to you got to do some special stuff but you still have neapolitan i would argue so similarly let's make the connection with the gospel guys the gospel is a set of unchanging truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ that can be contextualized in thousands of different ways. And that is why the gospel has been clearly communicated for 2,000 years to every cultural context imaginable. And the book of Acts chronicles how the unchanging truths of the gospel moved from Hebraic Jews, the Jews living in Palestine, to Hellenistic Jews, the Jews of the, the diaspora, the dispersion coming in from the Mediterranean world, the Greek-speaking Jews that adopted some Greek language and culture. It moves from the Hebraic to the Hellenistic. It moves from uh, half-Jewish Samaritans, these, this mixed race of Samaritans in the north. Uh, it moves to uh, rural, uneducated pagans. We see that in Paul's journey's all the way up to highly educated pagan philosophers on Mars Hill, all the way up to people in the household of Caesar himself. And we see this great progression of the gospel. The truths don't change, but they are contextualized differently. And like Neapolitan ice cream, the content remains the same, but folks, the sky is the limit in terms of contextualization. So think of all the people in your life that need to hear the gospel. You're going to see a lot of people over the holidays, friends, family, neighbors, all sorts of people. And just think of the people that don't have hope. They don't have the hope of God's forgiveness and eternal life. And they need to hear this good news of Christ. They all need to hear about it. They all, it's the same unchanging truths that they need to hear. But how might those truths be contextualized in a way that, that they could easily relate to, easily identify with? that would be winsome and compelling to them, given their situation. I mean, like Peter, we might have an opportunity to share our faith with someone who is steeped in knowledge of the Old Testament, but they've never trusted in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Uh, you know, we could follow Peter's lead in speaking to God's promises to King David to anoint one of his descendants to reign on his throne forever. If there's a, a, a Jewish person that, that has grown up in the Hebrew Scriptures just going back to those passages, just like what Peter's doing here and saying, like, this is really, this is really God's promise. And then we might, uh, you know, show them how these Hebrew scriptures anticipate the death and the resurrection. You ever wonder, like, when Jesus, after the resurrection, it says he showed them himself in all the scriptures. It's like he goes to the Old Testament. I'm like, oh, I would love to sit there. But we're looking at it in Peter's speech. What, what did Jesus point to? Same stuff as apostles are pointing to that anticipate his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. Maybe God's given you a relationship with a deeply wounded woman, or man, or a greedy person, a greedy businessman, or a recovering drug addict, or a struggling parent. Um, maybe that person is a Chinese exchange student struggling with her atheism. She's here taking classes with, at the university, a grad student, um, Maybe it's a young Muslim man seeking refuge in our country after experiencing unspeakable horrors at the hands of fellow Muslims in their home country. Regardless of who God has in your life, just remember that they need to hear the unchanging truths of the gospel in a way that resonates with their day-to-day realities. So gospel clarity means being clear about the message of salvation, but that's not all, and this is much briefer. We must also be clear about the means of salvation. How can we be saved? In other words, we must be able to tell people not just the content of the gospel, but we also need to tell them how to respond appropriately to the gospel message. And that's exactly how Peter finishes his speech in Acts 2. Let me read the the rest of it. It says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, What are we to do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on urging them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And according to the Gospel of John, we see this on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, Jesus says that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world, to convict people concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And in verse 37, we're actually seeing the effect of this ministry of the Holy Spirit in convicting the hearts of these people about their sin and about their need for salvation. Luke tells us that many of these Jewish people hearing the Gospel were pierced to the heart, And so then they ask the apostles, what are we to do? And without any hesitation, Peter tells them to do two things, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And he also states that their faith in Jesus would lead to to forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that Greek word for repent, uh, it, it actually can mean to change one's mind in Greek, in a Greek context. That word can mean to change one's mind. But guys, there is a, there's a Hebrew backdrop to what Peter is saying to these Jewish people in Jerusalem. And the Hebrew concept of repentance is the idea of turning from something and turning towards something else. Turning away from this, turning towards that. And that's what Peter's picking up here. It's this idea of turning. He, he calls his hearers to turn from their sin their rejection of God, the rejection of his Christ, their rebellion against God, and to turn from their sin to God and to his saving work in Jesus Christ. And he also states that that faith would lead to forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit. Uh, And many have pointed out this before. I'm not the first to say this, but repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. I used to think like, oh, no, no, repentance isn't required for salvation. If you do that, then that's a work, and that's us, like, saving ourselves, and it gets, you know, it it destroys the gospel of God's grace. But the more I, I look at the concept of repentance in Scripture, you can't turn to God without repentance. And so... I, I speak of it like this. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. But I like how uh, this guy, Dr. Daryl Bach, who's a, who's a scholar of the book of Acts, he says it like this. He says that, yes, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. But he goes on to say that repentance stresses the starting point of the need for forgiveness. Repentance stresses the starting point of the need for forgiveness. Uh, Whereas faith is the resulting trust and understanding that this forgiveness comes from God. I love that. And then, so we have repent, and then water baptism becomes the visible sign of of this invisible repentance uh, and faith in Christ. It it becomes the visible manifestation where we proclaim to the world what has happened in our hearts as we've turned from our sin and turned towards God in faith in Jesus Christ. It becomes the first step of obedience in a, in a new life that is defined by what? It's defined by God's forgiveness and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So, the means of salvation, folks, is simple. If somebody hears the gospel and says, What must I do? it is super simple. When gospel clarity brings conviction over sin, we must turn from sin and turn towards God through repentance and faith in the saving work of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And our salvation always involves the forgiveness of sin and the power to live a new life in Christ. And water baptism symbolizes all those things, and it marks the beginning of that new life in Christ, a life of forgiveness and empowerment through the Holy Spirit. That is beautiful. So it's one thing, going back to Neapolitan, It's one thing to receive a big, nice bowl, and that's where I had that pretty bowl with the strawberries. It's one thing to receive that and have it sitting in front of you on the table, but folks, if we leave it sitting on the table, it's going to melt, and then chances are we're going to just go and set it in the sink and walk away looking for something else to satisfy our craving. No, the whole point of scooping out a bowl of ice cream is to eat it and to enjoy it, to consume it, to take it in. And similarly, the gospel demands a response. This is why it's so dangerous if you grow up in the church. Children, listen to this. If you grow up in the church hearing the truths of the gospel and and, and taking communion and doing these things, but they just become this rote repetition of religious activity. And the gospel, it's like you've left the gospel sitting there on the table and it's melted and you're not interested anymore. So you go off to college and look for something else to satisfy your cravings and your questions and your feeling of emptiness the void in your life. Guys, it is made to consume it, to bring it in. You can't just receive it and leave it sitting on the table. As our hearts are convicted and convinced of the reality of sin in our lives, that is when we must respond by repenting and by putting our faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it's not enough to be clear about that message of salvation. We must also be clear about the means of salvation. In other words, calling people to respond to that message. Uh, at times, I've found myself saying things like, all you have to do to become a Christian is dot, dot, dot. All you have to do to become a Christian is say this prayer. All you have to do to become a Christian is, is just, uh, you know, tell me you believe these four bullet points or whatever it is. And, and I think in doing so, I think that we set people up to think of salvation as A one-time transaction where we say a prayer to get our golden ticket and then we just spend the rest of our lives waiting around to go to heaven. Guys, that is not how Jesus nor how his apostles talked about salvation, okay? There was a present active and a future reality to it. It wasn't just a one-time spiritual transaction where we say a little prayer or walk up to the front of the church or, or, do, or even get baptized or whatever it is, and now we've got our golden ticket. We're good. We're Christians. We're just going to go about our lives and do our thing. That's not how Scripture talks about it. Like Peter, we must make sure that people understand how to respond to that message of salvation. And it's, it's as simple as turning from sin and turning to God through faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. But that is something that happens in our hearts And we must also give expression to that. And how do we give expression to that? It's through the simple first step of obedience to Jesus Christ. And what is that? It's to be baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then that sets us on a trajectory where it's not just about going and taking the golden ticket and sticking it in our desk drawer and waiting around for heaven. It's about this whole new life of being forgiven and set free and empowered by God's Spirit to be in service to Jesus Christ our Lord and to be filled with a sense of purpose and joy and peace to, to live out of this new nature and not our old nature. And that's the beauty of responding to the gospel. Now, I'm not trying to get in the way of the fact that, that believing in Jesus, that that being saved is as simple as trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is that simple, but it doesn't stop there. That's my point. In this way, we accept the invitation of Peter in verse 21, which was to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. The name of the Lord hundreds of years before that in Joel's prophecy was Yahweh. The name of the Lord in this, in Acts chapter 2, is Jesus, whose name Joshua is means the Lord saves. The Lord is my salvation. And I'll close with the final verse of our passage which summarizes this overwhelming response to Peter's clear presentation of the gospel. It says in verse 41, so then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added, that is they were added by the Lord, About 3,000 souls. So the Holy Spirit worked through Peter's words. Is Peter some superhuman guy that's just amazing and articulating things? And he's just, he went to uh, uh, rhetoric school and no, he's just like you and I, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit worked through his gospel presentation, even as the Holy Spirit was working in the hearts of those hearing him. God is at work, folks, just like that in the hearts of people around you and I. The hearts of people that you're going to go spend Thanksgiving with, Christmas with, that you're going to see in your neighborhoods or visit in your families. God's at work in their hearts. So let's be equipped to present the gospel with clarity all the while trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about the actual conviction and repentance in people's lives. And we can trust Him to do that. Um, Next week, we are going to look at how the gospel clarity in Acts chapter 2 actually becomes gospel ministry in this newly formed church. And, And Kevin's going to take us there. Let me pray for us. Please bow your heads with me.